Hi, welcome to Dekai, Digital Era Entertainment's weekly anime podcast. I'm your host this week, Joel Gutman. With me today is just Frangi from the municipality of Frangiland within the greater area of Frangiville, which is uh, two exits after you pass Frangiburg. Oh, yeah, you weren't supposed to tell them about Frangiburg. That's a secret for the locals only. Oh, terribly sorry. Yeah. There we go. I figured out why we were having issues. Franji, are you here? Cool. I'm here. Awesome. Cool. You're a wizard. Good. Good. Uh, I forgot that I had still set everything to the the uh, scene collection for when I did the Magic the Gathering set review stream a week or two ago with Hayes, and that was a separate one. And obviously, since that's not Dekai, we didn't have the background in there, so the acid was removed and everything. And I forgot to switch it back to the other scene collection. But we should be good now. We sounding good, Dancing Red Sox? Hopefully, hopefully. But anyways, yes, Mario is preparing for one of his GalaxyCon panels that he has this afternoon, and Emmy is busy with Redacted. Uh, she's been delightfully busy with Redacted lately, and it sounds like she's going to be busy with a lot more Redacted coming forward. We're very, very happy for her, even if we're a little bit bummed that she can't be with us. But anyways, for today... Franji and I are going to take advantage of the fact that it is just the two of us because the two of us have been into a particular show lately and the other two haven't been watching it, so we can't normally rant about it. But it's basically uh, Mazar Sleep post Moriarty memes, so let's go. <laughs> yes, yes, rant and rave uh, about Moriarty the Patriot. Indeed, and just Moriarty and Sherlock in general. Yeah. Yeah, really. Everything Sherlock in general. Before we begin, has there been anything else you have been watching lately? Or is it really just Moriarty right now? Uh, Besides Fruits Basket and My Hero Academia, I'm actually not watching anything. Uh, I did did watch, I lied, I lied to you, this week. I did uh, watch the... Three, uh, like, movie compilations, basically, for Demon Slayer. Because Ooh, today nice. I'll be going to see Mugen Train. Choo-choo. Ooh, yeah, I'm probably going to get tickets for that, like, on Monday or something. Also, I'm told that you're a little bit quiet. I have you cranked up as high as I can get you on OBS, but actually, give me a second. Let me see. I, I fixed it. On uh, my, I forgot my gain was down again for oh. recording earlier today. <laughs> Oopsie doopsie. <laughs> There is a spot it goes in for while I'm on podcast, and it was not there, but now it is. Is that sounding better, Dancing Red Sox, hopefully? Hopefully. If not, actually, what I can do is, let me double check, I will bump up your volume here on Discord a little bit. Talk once more for me. Uh, you and I in a little toy shop buy a bag of balloons with the money we've got. I probably shouldn't sing very much more, or we're going to get in trouble on the uh, air. I, I, feel, uh, I feel like that's... It's a cover, and you don't have the back track, so <laughs> I don't worry too much about the DMCA for that. Ninety-nine six lift balloons. Da 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 da. Sorry. <laughs> Anyways, so yes, um, you've been watching some Demon Slayer. I'm probably gonna get tickets because it's been two weeks since I got my second vaccine, so I'm feeling a bit more, you know, comfortable venturing out. And obviously, you know, still wearing a mask and still going to a socially distanced movie theater. But uh, I I wish it were streaming because I'm still not thrilled at the idea. But I at the same time, I'm kind of the mentality. 
now that I've got the vaccine, if I'm going to a place that is taking precautions, I sort of need to train myself to go out again, you know, of just to say, <laughs> okay, it is all right to do this again because I have built up such a mental aversion and an acceptance of, okay, I can operate from my apartment and this is okay and I shouldn't go out. Don't go out unless you really need to. And I have, you know, really ingrained that mindset over the last year. And now it's exciting to say, oh gosh, I kind of need to undo this now. And realizing that there's that little bit of mental tension, but being like, okay, you know, as long as they're distancing in the theater, people are wearing masks, theaters are big. It's as big a indoor space as you're going to get short of like a stadium or a concert hall. You're going to be okay. We're going to be I mean, okay. <laughs> you you got to live. And as long yes. as everybody's doing their best and distancing, my theater's doing distancing too. They've good, closed good. up so many seats. Yeah. Um, I mean, the general public can still be really, really stupid, as I discovered when I tried to go to an aquarium that was apparently taking proper precautions uh, a few weeks ago. But um, <sighs> so, you know, you know, you know, sometimes you just got to be that jerk who's like, excuse me, ma'am. You're not wearing your mask over your nose. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> seriously. Like, I don't know. Anyways, um, okay. for myself, I'm watching a crap ton this season. Like, at first I wasn't expecting to, but I'm watching My Hero Academia, Fruits Basket, uh, Slimes for 300 Years, Moriarty, Shadows House, The World Ends With You, Tokyo Revengers, Zombieland Saga, Oops, I'm a Spider, Odd Taxi, Nomad, Mars Red. Um, yeah, I've got a lot oh. of stuff. Odd Taxi is, as Mario said last week, shaping up to be one of the best just proper noir anime that we've had in a while. It's been really good. Shadow's House continues to just be gorgeous and have so much intrigue of what is going on here. Highly recommended. Fruits Basket is, you know, firing on all cylinders, being emotional as heck, and making you need tissues every damn episode. And My Hero is still real good. And then there is Moriarty, the Patriot. So <laughs> we got we to gotta start by talking about the opening theme song because I found out something ooh. that like blew my mind. <laughs> oh, please. Um, so so um, my wife was playing the music on YouTube and um, the first and second opening theme songs are done by the same artist. And I found out that that artist is also the voice actor for Kaminari Denki. And Reki from Skate the Infinity. So, oh dear. <laughs> so I'm just like, wait, Kaminari from My Hero is like, you know, he's got that like, it's just, it's, it speaks to his talent because he sings in like this deep, amazing voice for the the Moriarty openings, and then you know, Denki's like, ah, way up here, and, and kind of silly. Uh, so yeah, that that surprised me. Yes, yes. Um, I can't decide which opening I like better. That. Um... The, the first one was really good, but the second one is also super dramatic, and yes. uh, uh, they, they are both very, very solid. I think the first one has to be my favorite just because the visuals that went with it seemed to fit a little bit more seamlessly. Yeah. And when the food, like, melted and turned to ash, I just... I, I just there was that, was that so and good. also just <laughs> Moriarty falling off of London oh, Tower. Oh, the Reichenbach, and like, yeah, it, like, yeah. And, figuring out, all right, is that going to be our Reichenbach Fall? Because obviously Reichenbach Fall does not refer actually to the act of falling, but 
a waterfall in oh, Reichenbach. Yeah. So it, will we still have that parallel? I'm I'm figuring Moriarty either dying or faking death via some sort of fall is inevitable. But it's going to be the question of do they go one-to-one with what they teased in that opening and have him go off a big Ben, or is it going to be a proper, you know, we go to Reichenbach and we have a actual recreation of Holmes and Moriarty fighting and falling off in this, you know, very natural area. Here's your your <laughs> my takeaway from that. Ready? I'm inserting your your London trivia here. Mm. Big Ben is actually the name of the bell, not the clock or the clock. Ah, tower. yes. So, so, so it would be yeah. <laughs> off of London Tower, not. Of a, well, the Tower of London. Is Ta- tower else. of London. Oh, dang it! I'm just awful at this. <laughs> Please educate me because, well, this leads very seamlessly, actually, into one of the first things I wanted to discuss. Of just, you posted a just a huge, huge monologue on Facebook today about a time when you lived in London. I did not actually know that you ever lived in London for a time. So please tell me a bit about that because there is relevance. To this and to Moriarty and to Sherlock, dear listeners, don't worry. But I need to actually also get context. That's fine. Um, Context is basically, I was so angry this morning because I've been watching so much Moriarty the Patriot. And as a result, I picked up a new copy of the full Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. And I've been reading through that. Um, And uh, I woke up this morning and I was like, I think I'm going to read again while I drink tea and have breakfast. And and then I just got mad at this thing I have periodically gotten mad about, which was I lived in London. And here here is where I lived in London. I went um, to study abroad in 2008 and I went to Regent's College, which is in the middle of Regent's Park, um, right across from Queen Mary's Rose Gardens, which is right right by um, Marylebone Road and Baker Street. Um, and every day, if I wanted to go somewhere, I would have to take the Baker Street tube stop uh, and walk by a statue of Sherlock Holmes and walk by 221 Baker Street, which is where the Sherlock Holmes Museum is. Uh, but I never visited the museum. And I took a class there on crime fiction, and we studied uh, Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express. Hey, hey. Conan Doyle's Sign of Four. So not only did I study Doyle's work, live right next to Baker Street. It was it was a 0.2-mile walk, probably a three-minute walk from where I slept every night. And I went by it, and I never went. I went to um, Madame Tussauds, which is a very famous wax museum that's yeah, yeah. also right in the area. Um, I don't know how I went to that and didn't go to Baker Street, but I, I spent months living there and never went. And that is probably one of the biggest regrets ever. So I woke up this morning thinking about it again and was like, am I stupid? So how did I was this for this a museum? study abroad term or did you actually do your full uh, either grad or undergrad experience in London? It was, it turned into one study abroad term. Um, I decided to come back to the States because I wanted to meet the person who turned out to become my wife later, uh, who lived in Washington State. Okay, um, well, at least you left for good reason. Like, that that's yeah. about as good a reason as you're going to get. I was going to stay for um, the theater classes there and stuff and the writing and the history. Um, I I wasn't going to come home. <laughs> but then I did. Uh, and I actually haven't been back since, which is very, very I have sad. never been. Um, my little sister actually spent a couple weeks in London over the summer a couple years ago. 
Um, she majored in fashion merchandising and actually got to do some stuff for London Fashion Week. And uh, she worked with a really, really famous designer whose name I cannot recall, but they have like a million plus subscribers and followers on Instagram and Twitter. And she worked on stuff that was like on the main runway. She did, you know, detail work for it. She didn't create anything, but, you know, she had a hand in it and was able to participate. So that was cool for her. But I have never actually been to London myself, but I definitely want to go sometime. It's such a great place to go, especially if you like um, seeing shows and music because you can go for fairly inexpensive rates. And if I recall correctly, um, all of the museums were like they are in D.C., I think. D.C., that they're free. They're free. You just walk in and you just Well, I know D.C. That's where I grew up. So, yeah, that was the great thing. That was the thing that, you know, the first time I went to New York or something and they're charging like $25 to $50 to walk into a museum, I was just perplexed. It was like, wait, what? What are you talking about? Th- yeah, these are museums. expensive. <laughs> Anyways, so I actually want to read a little passage out of Sherlock Holmes' The Final Problem because something that not many people who aren't super familiar with Sherlock Holmes don't realize is that Moriarty only appears in a single story. And to be proper, Professor Moriarty never appears in Sherlock Holmes, uh, at least in the sense that Dr. Watson never sees him, ever. Mm. Mm. So, one sec, I need to open my booth a little bit so I can actually read and get the light in so there might be a little bit of echo here. (laughs) He is the Napoleon of crime, Watson. He is the organizer of half that is evil and nearly all that is undetected in this great city. He is a genius, a philosopher, an abstract thinker. He He has a brain of the first order. He sits motionless, like a spider in the center of a web, a web that has a thousand radiations, and he knows well each and every quiver, er, sorry, every quiver of each of them. He does little himself, he only plans, but his agents are numerous and splendidly organized. Is there a crime to be done, a paper to be abstracted? We will say, a house to be rifled, a man to be removed. The word is passed to the professor, and and the matter is organized and carried out. The agent may be caught, In that case, money is found for his bail or his defense, but the central power which uses the agent is never caught, never so much as suspected. That was the organization which I deduced, Watson, and which I devoted my whole energy to exposing and breaking up. Many literary, you know, just uh, academics will, sorry, once resetting things up, will actually point to Professor Moriarty as the first historical literary example of a supervillain, a person who organizes the machinations of a larger organization of crime or evildoing in a non-militaristic sense. Because obviously you have, you know, classic villainous war generals throughout the ages, but until uh, Arthur Conan Doyle wrote this, that there are no at least significant examples that literary historians point to prior to Moriarty that would qualify under our more modern definition as a supervillain. I like how you, you pointed out that it's a very non-militaristic way that he goes about doing it. It, it, um, it makes me really like how they chose to title him in Moriarty the Patriot, which is the Lord of Crime, which sounds so much more aristocratic and like don't get your hands dirty kind yes, of way. Yes, very much so. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so um, Moriarty is and has always been 
the thinker. All right, so yeah, so Moriarty has always been this super smart person, but he is described in Sherlock Holmes: The Final Problem. And by the way, spoiler alerts for both normal Sherlock Holmes and for Moriarty the Patriot up until this point in the anime. We have not read the manga. But um, what happens in the final problem, essentially, is that Holmes goes to meet Moriarty in Reichenbach, which is this rural area. Um, it's the countryside because Sherlock is trying to get out of Dodge because he believes that Moriarty is trying to have him killed. And the way that the story goes is that he goes with Watson. Watson gets an urgent call that is supposed to bring him back to London, but it's a fake. And when he comes back, he finds that Holmes has died and is able to deduce that he and Moriarty fought on the edge of the Reichenbach waterfall and both fell in together and died. Mm. And the thing is, Watson himself never actually sees Moriarty. Now, mm. as we all know, Holmes survived because Arthur Conan Doyle, a couple years after killing off Holmes, realized that uh, his new stories were not selling as well, and supposedly there was even actual pressure from the crown of just, like, yes. you know, that there were people in high society who were avid Sherlock fans and were not happy that Sherlock had died, so... He was compelled to bring Sherlock back to life, and it was, like, the bane <laughs> of poor Conan Doyle's existence. He did not like Sherlock Holmes. He, he did not enjoy thought... writing it. No, he thought that stuff was pretty, like, basic. He thought he could do so much better um, with the higher-minded works of writing. and um, But people didn't like them because they were, I think, too, like, up there in, in your head and too flowery or something. And they just weren't as popular yeah. as Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> but um, at least to my memory, Moriarty does not appear in any of the other ones after Holmes was revived. That Moriarty was considered properly dead and not revived himself. So Moriarty is never actually, quote-unquote, seen in Doyle canon, which is kind of funny because of just how prominent he has gone on to be in all of, you know, post-Doyle Holmes adaptations. Because even if you go prior to the last 15 or so years, that Moriarty is the character that is always the one that is opposing Holmes when you're doing adaptations We've seen a lot of representations of the character over the years. Um, obviously, a really big one was in BBC's Sherlock, where it was um, Tom Scott, I think was his name. Oh, I got I forget. Uh, have you seen BBC's Sherlock, Franji? Oh, yes. God, yes. I love it. Like, I, love, I love that one. That's obviously the thing that put Benedict Cumberbatch on the map, that he had done other things before it, but I think it's very safe to say that his current success, what got him into the MCU and what has really been the catalyst for his career was Sherlock. But My mind I, palace. Yes, but <laughs> I absolutely loved the actor that they got for Moriarty. He was this oh, delightful mixture yes. of just cool and yet unhinged. And you could see that this guy was dangerous. You could yes. feel that he was dangerous, and I really enjoyed that. But anyways, back to the... the 
Oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, for the little that Moriarty is actually in the Sherlock canon, I can see why he has compelled people to write about him because he does make the perfect foil for Sherlock Holmes. But the thing is, almost every other Sherlock iteration I've seen still has Sherlock as the main character. And what Moriarty the Patriot does is put Moriarty himself yes. front and center. And yeah. that is just something I've never seen. And I think it's phenomenal. Yes, absolutely. That I really enjoy things that focus on villains. I enjoy things that, you know, turn them on their head. And honestly, it's a bit surprising when you think about how many Sherlock adaptations have been done over the years that, at least to my knowledge, that there has never been one that actually put the spotlight on Moriarty because it feels so obvious. This has been done for other pieces of classic literature. Um, you know, Wicked, obviously, very, very famously putting the spotlight on the Wicked Witch of the West as opposed to Dorothy in the story of the Wizard of Oz. So this is not a new concept by any stretch. And seeing it now, it's, like I said, surprising it hasn't been done sooner, but... Maybe it has, and I just haven't noticed. I mean. Possibly, but uh, Moriarty the Patriot is certainly doing it really well. And oh, my God. And it's been so much fun to watch because they've done things that are obviously pulling very directly off of Conan Doyle canon that... They had a effective recreation of a study in Scarlet in season one. It was yeah. a pretty one for one, actually, that there was a couple of details here and there, but there was, you know, it was still a cab driver that was responsible yes. for it. And but you the had the backstory. Details, the major details they did change, they only changed it to fit in better with Moriarty's narrative and Precisely. his plans for Sherlock. So, like, the, the message that was written in blood was completely different. Yes. You know? <laughs> It was so cool. Um, and you know what I noticed today uh, is that, and I should have noticed this sooner, but I, you know, I'm always going on about, oh my gosh, the beautiful rugs. Oh my gosh, the wallpaper. The animation is gorgeous. Well, when I was looking up the Sherlock Museum today, um, I saw some pictures of the interior and I realized that the way that museum is set up is exactly, it's exactly depicted in Moriarty the Patriot. That room that Sherlock always sits in with the red wallpaper and, you know, the chemistry stuff off in the corner and that table with the mirror in between the windows, that is exactly what the Sherlock Museum looks like. Exactly. Oh, that's cool. Uh, and my guess is that's is done cool. in uh, other ones like BBCs and yes. others and that I just haven't yes. noticed it. But I appreciate mm -hmm. when that level of detail is put in. That's always cool. That it's very obvious and it has been from the beginning that... This isn't just some rando production that was like, oh, Sherlock Holmes is popular, so let's write something about Sherlock. This right. was written by a Sherlockian. This is absolutely written by someone who knows what they're talking about. And, yes. and isn't afraid yeah. to poke fun at it. Mm, yeah. <laughs> With the whole James Moriarty thing. Yeah. I just, oh my gosh, I need to look into this more myself because um, my wife is the one that went on like all the Wikipedia pages and started to dig into it because um, she noticed first that like all of the brothers, their middle name is James. And she, I'm like, well, why? Because why? now there's there's a canon reason in Moriarty the Patriot for mm -hmm. it, kind of, sort of, right? Yeah. But I guess um, there was something with, with Conan Doyle referring to Moriarty by different names in different sections of the stories and I so because at least in the little passage that I read he was just referred to as Professor Moriarty because he right. was and actually is in this one a professor of mathematics at the opening scene and uh, one of the scenes shown in the opening sequence of season one is him writing at a chalkboard at a university as a mathematics professor um, mm. obviously but that is not a big 
part of his character in either because that is very much just it's his cover. Hmm. But uh, there's they been have some kept debate that. as to what his what his first name was, mm. and I think there's different references, or a lot of them have you know uh, something James. Um, yeah, because I've always like, heard it as James Moriarty. Right, right, um, and I th- there's a reason for that. I can't remember what it is, but there's also different other names that have come up, and I think they were Albert um, <laughs> and William you know, and William, and yeah. So I think like it's a reference. The three of uh, them, I love their that. Names, I believe is a reference to the different Moriartys, and so we have three Moriartys in this show instead of like one. Yeah. We have an organization, but it is actually <laughs> yeah. Not only is it that James Moriarty is at the center of a web and is just duplicitous isn't the right word, multiplicitous? I don't know if that's the word. Anyways, that, that that there are many factors to Moriarty's power, but also the fact that now it is actually that the power that is James Moriarty isn't even a singular person. Uh, that revelation in this last episode was very, very big, and actually it's been one of the more exciting things because obviously I was already totally in love with William James Moriarty as a character, I would have been absolutely satisfied if it was all right. He is Moriarty, the Moriarty, and his brothers are his helpers, his accomplices. But the fact that they are being woven in that little bit more, that it's obvious that William is still our central, central Moriarty. He is the ultimate brains of it. He is the pinnacle of this organization, as it were. But the fact that they are really actually showing Albert and wait a minute so it's because William is born who's the why am I playing on the actual son's Lewis, name the younger brother Lewis oh. yes thank you yeah, yeah that they're actually really leaning into Albert and Lewis's uh contributions to everything yeah. and showing that they have their own parts to play in this and their own strengths and abilities and that they aren't just these accessories to William and that William doesn't see them as accessories or anything like that is really, really cool because it adds that just extra layer of characterization and complexity to all of this. And I, I'm just so delighted to have that. Yes. Uh, yes. Um, I was, I was delighted at Albert being 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 Albert uh and and what they did with Irene Adler. Oh gosh, um, yes. How they got the her woman. involved with the Moriarty's. Yes. Um that was great, the woman. Uh it, it was great how she, you know, she beats Sherlock like she does in the actual mm-hmm. story. Um <laughs> uh but just the way that all turns out and how he has to turn her over to the Lord of Crime for protection. It reminds me of um that one scene in Code Geass, that one uh that one battle where Suzaku and Zero end up having to work together and they exchange the like battery pack or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Because um, they realize they have the same goal for that one fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was kind of like that. You know, Sherlock doesn't want to be doing it because he knows the Lord of Crime is wrong, but literally the Lord of Crime is the only person who can help him. So he turns Irene Adler over to them. And that, that just, that was so cool. Yeah. And <laughs> the twist that they had of it being all right, the British Empire engineered the French Revolution. Is like, oh my god, okay, yeah, that's bold. <laughs> oh, don't and worry, then, dancing um, Red Sox. We're gonna get way more into Code Geass references because, uh, we'll get we'll probably get to it in a couple minutes, but we aren't done talking Geass parallels yet. Oh, oh, no, we're not. No, we're not. Uh, <laughs> I just lost my train of thought, but yes, the French Revolution, yes, um, 
Wow. Uh, oh, and then um, what Mycroft Holmes revealed about, yes, Robespierre was actually Sherry, 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 whoever, of uh, a member of the Holmes family actually yes. was responsible, really. Yes. Um, so that, that was <laughs> super cool. Of just like, ha. For that. <laughs> oh, because it, it now just it ties together the bloodlines of Holmes and Moriarty that much more that it it even feels almost faded at this point now that they should meet and that they should conflict in this way. It's just very, very interesting. Um, and I guess we might as well go on into sort of the giant elephant in the room from this past week's episode, which oh is really setting the stage for the rest of the series. Um, assuming that it's just going to be these two seasons, that would give us uh, nine episodes left, which I think is enough time at, at the clip that they're going. And it's basically that the organization of James Moriarty plans to engineer their own version of the Zero Requiem Mm -hmm. in that they understand that what they are doing is crime, is illegal, is wrong, and it will be viewed wrong by the majority of society. They also see what they are doing as a very necessary evil. And their ultimate goal is to take out enough of the corrupt aristocracy to the point where they can put together this just, you know, proper democracy, meritocracy in England. And then they realize that inevitably things will escalate in one way or the other that, you know, followers might get overzealous or that uh, they themselves might get overzealous. So they sort of plan to say, all right, what we are going to do is we are going to do what we plan to do, and then we're going to go too far. We plan to go too far with the ultimate goal of turning the public against us. So that everyone can unite with a common enemy, and then as the price for our doing all this wrong, we will die for it because they will kill us. (laughs) Yes. Um, And that is just big. That is just heavy. Um, And I had the feeling that this show would go that way, but I didn't think they were going to reveal that until much closer to the end. The fact that it's out in the open this soon, It It throws another wrench in it because then just as a consumer of stories, you say, all right, the Zero Requiem happened as it did because it was a reveal. You actually thought that Lelouch had gone off the deep end. You actually thought that he had just finally become that which he sought to destroy. So the revelation that no, it was his plan and he knew what he had done was wrong and that he organized for Suzaku to kill him and become the new Zero, that's what made it so powerful because that whole sequence in the last episode was such a revelation. So for them to say, this is our plan super early in the season, it can't be that simple anymore. It can't be. You know, and it gives me the opposite expectation. I'm like, okay, so you know you're going to die and you've been planning for it. You're ready. Like, you're too ready. You have to be saved then. I'm like, there's got to be another way. Like, what? So now I'm like, is Sherlock going to save them? But poor Sherlock is so in the dark right now. Everybody knows what's going on now. Everybody who matters, you know, the Lord of Crimes organization, his brother, who is the government, and Shirley is the only one that doesn't have a clue. Yeah. The great detective is in the dark. And I'm just like, where is this going? But at the same time, we have to assume that sooner or later, Sherlock will put it together. But it's a question of of when and where. Yes. And then what does 
he plan that may or may not aid, hinder, or otherwise throw a wrench in the Moriarty's plan. Right. Oh, it's going to be good. Yeah. <laughs> because It's going to be good. I, I very much like your idea of, okay, is he now saved? Does Sherlock do something? Does Sherlock take the fall this time? I don't think that happens. Um, but maybe we have something like you have in Code Geass where Moriarty does fall but doesn't die and is able to slip away quietly into the night and live out their days somewhere in the country. Maybe in Reichenbach. Okay, do you mind do you mind a teeny tiny manga spoiler of, that of of something that goes to an episode that we've already seen? Well, if we've already seen it then it's fine. If we've already seen it. Yes, okay. So so I'm not reading the manga because I don't want the spoilers, but my wife yeah. is, and I told her, don't spoil anything for me, but there was one tiny panel that she showed me um, from the scene where um, Albert's at the masquerade party, and he's talking to Irene up on the balcony, mm-hmm. um, and he's, like, swirling his glass of wine and basically being like, yes, I am the Lord of Crime. Yes. Um, in the anime, he just seems so dead calm about it. Um, but in the manga, when that scene happens, he has a moment where he tells Irene, basically, it took me a lot of practice to be able to drink a glass of wine right after I killed a man, because before I was just like barfing my brains out <laughs> um, and I was getting sick over it. And I was like, gosh, that's that's really interesting because the anime doesn't or hasn't yet really dug into like the personal feelings mm-hmm. of any of the Moriarty's about what they're doing. Yeah. And that just gave me huge insight into Albert. And I'm like, I oh, wonder yeah. if later on down the line, it's going to explore, you know, how they've felt about what they're doing on a personal level. Oh, yeah. I could um, see how that's a really cool detail that when you have the time for that in the manga is super appreciated. But I can see how that type of thing would be among the first things cut if you yes. need to worry about your runtime. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah, that's really yeah. cool. That is cool. And also now <laughs> just the the fact that Irene Adler isn't just saved, isn't just being sent away somewhere to live out her days, you know, in exile to make sure that she's safe. She is now fully integrated into the Moriarty's organization. And then the flipping kicker. Oh, <laughs> my so God. I was... <laughs> So, for those of you who aren't watching, like we said, full spoilers for everything going up through Season 2, Episode 3 of Moriarty the Patriot. They have saved Irene Adler from her situation where she had stolen information and had the government after her. And basically, they replaced her with a a cadaver that they, they took a body from a hospital, threw it into the river, and had it be discovered as Irene Adler. So according to all public records now, Irene Adler is dead. And they were saying, all right, you're going to need a new name. And they said, you're now part of our organization. You are now one of us, even more so than the average person who is collaborating. So, 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 we, so, we're, so we're going to James. give you our first name. We're going to give you James. And she, and said, do, you do you want to, name. yeah, hmm. do you want to do it, Franji? Do you want to do the honors? <laughs> no, 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 I don't. I'm okay. Angry. I'll be Albert here, <laughs> hmm, but you're going to need a last name. And then just Irene very calmly just uses her thumb to start wiping off her lipstick and says, this is a new beginning for me, new friends, new bonds. The name's Bond, James Bond. <laughs> 
So angry. So Irene Adler is James Bond, and now James Bond is part of the Moriarty family, and I just can't handle this. I can't either. It makes me so angry because, like, I love puns and stuff, and you know, and it's campy and it's funny, but like, for some reason, I've never been a huge fan of like the British campy humor, and I've never liked James Bond. But I gotta admit, it's perfect. It was like, it was so good. (laughs) And the fact that they were, it felt justified, too, because they said, well, we're going to give you our name of James, that that wasn't a totally random thing. The the last name, all right, you had to work a bit to get there. But gosh, in terms of splicing together, probably the two single most historically significant pieces of British fiction to actually join Holmes and Bond is in and of itself, a wonderful feat. And it's ridiculous. As, it's the type of thing, that, like you said, it, it, furious. But dang, I respect it. And dang, I, I love yeah. it. Just props to the writer for saying, okay, I have this chance. I see this opening and I'm going to take it. Yeah, and in an otherwise very serious, very intellectual show, I'm oh, going to do yeah. this ridiculous thing, oh, and yeah. it's going to be perfect. But the, <laughs> also the thing is, from everything that we know about Irene Adler, how smart she is, how capable she is, Irene Adler can be James Bond as we know she James can. Bond. She can absolutely yes. be this world-class spy. This isn't just a name. She is actually capable of carrying that title. She's very smart. I can't believe how fast she realized just walking through that tunnel, uh, you know, after Albert takes her out of the church. She's like, oh, shit, the Lord of Crime is actually an organization. And uh, this guy in the top hat, the blondie here, is in charge. Let me just let me just curtsy. Yeah. You know, she, like, she got it in a second. Mm-hmm. She's very smart. And just the way they characterized her of this girl who came from nothing and made it her mission in life to... Uh, borrow a phrase to send the elevator back down yes that's a great phrase yes and it's interesting because irene adler she only has one i mean she's alluded to and mentioned in lots of other cases of sherlock holmes but there's only one short story that she's actually in yeah Um, that seems to be the thing with an impression conan doyle of just he never really reused stuff between his stories everything was ground up that we have holmes we have watson and everything else is going to be Flavor of the Week, Monster of the Week, Villain of the Week. And Hmm. just the characters of Watson and Adler stood out so much because they elicited, at least my impression is that they stood out because they elicited particular emotional responses from Sherlock that are uncharacteristic of him. For Moriarty, it was the fact that Sherlock found someone who he not only genuinely respected but feared. Mm. And with Irene Adler, it was love. The emotion that, well, something akin to love. (laughs) Something akin, as much as Sherlock Holmes can feel, right? But the the mere idea that Sherlock Holmes might feel something even tangentially akin to love is Mm -hmm. such a divergence for him that whatever it is that he felt was so impactful for him, but also just as a reader that the character sticks out because of this. Yes, and she was one of the only people to ever outsmart him so that he could not solve a case the rest of the way. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Man. Uh, So, Ah. I guess 
now I suppose we might as well start really delving into a few more predictions here. Um, going back to something that they had in Season 1 when Moriarty first became aware of Sherlock, that Williams said, we need to test him to see if he is worthy of being the person we need. It was something along those lines, but they, they very explicitly said, we need to test him. And that is what led to the scene in the chapel graveyard where Holmes had the decision of, was he going to shoot uh, Hope. Hope or not? Yeah. And he didn't. And that was what, after the fact, Moriarty said, he's our man. So, first off, it was a test of his character and his ethics of does he operate on the wavelength that the Moriarty's do that, at least for the Moriarty's, unless there is extenuating circumstance and active, like, evil, that they won't kill people. They have no problem killing someone that they deem as particularly evil, but... Even in the cases that they have killed, it is only the nobles that reach cartoonish levels of cruelty that they right. set their sights on. This isn't just your average scoffing aristocrat that they are going after. It is someone who is, you know, letting a child die or, you know, committing just unspeakable acts that they are Hunting going after. Other humans yes. in their backyards. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that it takes someone of particular malice to actually get the Moriarty's ire. They aren't haphazardly saying, oh, you come from a well-to-do bloodline and didn't give 50% of your estate to charity. We're going to off you. Mm. Mm. So for them to also test Sherlock and say, all right, we understand that to you, solving the crime is everything and that you are you love your mysteries and you love information and you need to know things. How far are you willing to go Will you take a life to do it if this person is questionable but isn't a monster? And the fact and that he said no. dangle knowledge in front of you that mm -hmm. you want. Will yes. you do it for your own selfish means? Yes. Or <laughs> uh, scenes like that just make me go, thank God for John Watson. Mm -hmm. Because that man is Sherlock's moral compass. Oh, always has been, <laughs> even in the original yes. Even in the original yes. stories, always has been. Oh, God. <sighs> but now there's a the question of what are their plans for Sherlock? That obviously their plans, if you were to just boil it down, is to be the foil to Moriarty's and for Holmes to be the hero. But what type of things might they have in store for Sherlock? What might they try and, for lack of a better term, coerce him to do? Oh, gosh. I always just assumed that he was to be the Suzaku to the Zero he, Requiem He is, yes. Thing. But just, I wonder how they might have him do it. That is it just going to be all right? They're, we're going to lay out our breadcrumbs for you to chase us. Mm -hmm. And we expect you to just follow our lead. Or will there be a time that they ultimately have a, well, a time before their last confrontation that they get to have a proper conversation? Oh, God, I hope so. <laughs> I also uh, hope they go into um, the backstory a little bit more of these two little orphan boys, these two little blondies here, because, boy, they spoke very 
particularly proper for little orphan boys. And I know they were well read because they went into the library all the time before um, Albert took them in. But it's like, I where did they come from, really? Do they know who their parents were? Like, I, I want to know. That's, that's an interesting factor that I hadn't even considered. I was, I'm thinking so much about the now and the future, but I love that question about the past and just. It makes me think that there's something because obviously William has this just incredible desire to rid the world of evil, quote unquote. Hmm. But such resolve and such dedication is rarely something that one is simply born with it. There is circumstance there is usually some event, some revelation that makes, that sort of awakens that urge in a person. And in order to get that hyper focus that Moriarty has, there must have been some triggering event. And now that you mention it, now I do want to see, all right, is there something that happened prior to them being taken in, prior to going to the orphanage that... Yeah embedded this flame in William. I just hope there is, because if there is, it's bound to be good. Because if we look at just Albert's story alone and how intense that is, I cannot tell you how many times I've watched those two episodes. Oh, yeah, it was really good. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And and, and the Uh, thing is, like, those two episodes, I was getting a little worried because the first episode you have Moriarty being Moriarty, and it was like, okay, I expect this to be sort of uh, a series of revenge tales with Moriarty Mm. and we'll get Holmes eventually. So when they spent the entire second and third episode of a 12-episode season doing this flashback, it felt a little bit weird to me uh, because at least at that point, I didn't know that they had a second season planned. So it seemed odd. And Mm. at that point in time, it felt like they had slowed the pace a bit. And I was like, this is good. And obviously, the last couple scenes in Episode three were super, super great and had Mm -hmm. me hooked from there. But getting through episode two and the first half of episode three even felt a little slow. But now looking back on it, you say, uh, at least for me, it it felt, I guess part of it was that it was so different from episode one that it was like, okay, I'm not sure what this show is trying to be right now. And Uh, And part of this is also from the incorrect knowledge at the time of me thinking, all right, we only have 12 episodes to do whatever we're doing. And now we're spending two episodes on something that feels very different from episode one. So something here feels off. But now looking back, now understanding, all right, we're working with a minimum of 24 episodes and seeing where we are already, those two episodes are so vital and add the foundation that is what really makes everything that that has come since so gripping because you have that foundation of, all right, we know why the three brothers are so united and why they have the level of trust that they have together and the types of bonds that they have. Yeah, it it's it flavors the entire show. Um, those two episodes, I, I guess I had a total different reaction to you because when I start watching an anime, I guess I don't tend to think of like, oh gosh, how many seasons do we have? Um, <laughs> I do that like afterwards. I was just so immersed in it um and i was like okay here's the narrative this is the type of moriarty we are building toward um 
and it clinched it clinched it for me. I, I there was no turning back after those two episodes. I was like, holy crap! Yeah, no, I'm so the, deep once in this, episode I three out. ended, I was like, okay, I see where we're going now. Yes. Um, yes, I think episode amazing. two for me was sort of the 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 most hesitant I got. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, it, it, I think it's an amazing series that you know teases Sherlock Holmes in the very beginning mm-hmm. by a little boy reading the adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then Sherlock doesn't actually show up until I think episode four or five when they get onto the ship. Oh, yeah. And obviously the the way that they unveiled Sherlock was so oh, good. because I we, screamed. We, it was uh, so I saw good. it a mile away, and I assume you did too. Oh, it was yeah. very yes, obvious. Did, but, but still, it was but so it was just stupid the good. Way, oh, yeah. The way that they just really sort of teased it and was like, you know this is Sherlock. We know this is Sherlock, but we're still going to have this guy get a grand entrance and a grand introduction to Moriarty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, oh that must have been so much fun to act. I think they blew their whole budget on 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 the animation alone. Yeah, it must have been so much fun to act, but if you look at just the way Moriarty stands there and looks up at that spiral staircase, you look at his eyes, they look like little ruby freaking gems. It is so beautiful the way they sparkle. Mm. And I'm just like, what is going on here? Like, this is too, it was too much for me. I screamed, and I've seen that scene like 40,000 times because I just yeah. love watching them pick each other apart. Because we haven't had that many scenes where they're sort of their intellect is pitted directly against each other. Yeah. Um, was it, we haven't had that. Yeah, it like wasn't that until yet, that so. and then catch me if you can, Mr. Holmes. Oh, my God, I'm going to die. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. It's really important in life if you're that smart to have a rival. Yes. And uh, so Holmes's palpable excitement, like, gosh, if you were the Lord of Crime, this would be sure as heck interesting. I mean, I don't really want to be dealing with a criminal because I'm Sherlock, but I'm also Sherlock. So, like, if you were the Lord of Crime. And then Moriarty just being like, you can't prove it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing. Or if just, you can, then go ahead and catch me. <laughs> that on some level, it's it's kind of unclear right now, does Holmes fully realize already that Moriarty is the Lord of Crime because there was the moment with the letter and the identity and whatnot where he (gasps) seems unsure. Yeah. Holmes, Um, you're too good. You're too good. It's going to be your downfall. But at the same time, (laughs) does he already know because of that scene on the train? I don't know. See, and I don't know. And that's why it was so interesting that when – when they go to negotiate for the papers back in Irene Adler's life, it's Albert that is in the church behind the screen because Albert is the only one I think that Sherlock hasn't directly met and had dealings with. Like, it couldn't be William because Sherlock's talked to him. So it's like, oh, how much that's does Sherlock right. know? I that's don't right. know. That's right. That's yeah. right because it, Albert was on the train with William. Sorry, no, sorry, Louis. sorry, sorry. L- 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 yeah, L- 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 yeah. Yes, was on the train. Yeah. Yep. Uh, but Albert yeah. was not on the train, yes. So oh, I hadn't. I hadn't even. But he doesn't know Albert yet. I hadn't actually made that connection or that lack of connection. I think Ooh. so. It had to be Albert doing. Yeah, that yeah, that exchange. makes sense. Well, and it, yeah. and it certainly makes sense that you have Albert be the one that goes out to the party and whatnot because he is the one that is uh, the rightful oh, lord yeah. of the Moriarty family. Yes, he puts the lord in Lord of Christ. Indeed. <laughs> But also, you mentioned something a couple minutes ago that now has me thinking on a whole nother level because I had forgotten about it. And that's what? that the opening scene of this series starts in not present day, but mm-hmm. it's mid-1900s, and it is of a boy reading a Sherlock yes. Holmes novel. And you see the classic, iconic 
depiction of Professor Moriarty. There's this very classic drawing that is in, basically, if, if you were to Google the name Moriarty and illustration and not find some live action representation, there is pretty much a singular illustration that has become the standard that is published Mm -hmm. in basically any Holmes book that has illustrations. And it is of this older man hunched over a little bit, very different from what we see in any of our three Moriarty's right now. Uh, But but the thing is, if we have this boy reading this book and the illustration is the same, we should assume that whatever happens in this story, that the version of Sherlock Holmes that we are familiar with in real life is what gets published in this timeline's fiction – regardless of what happens. So then there's the question of who is our Arthur Conan Doyle? Oh wow, I guess I guess I didn't read into it quite that much. I just I, I mean it didn't Or is or it is it just all head, published but... by Watson? Because I suppose it could just be all published by Watson, but the fact that Holmes canon continues to exist and is a is a literature staple in whatever future exists in that timeline. See, I don't know. It could be that, or I'm thinking it could just be a nod to the canon because the creators of Moriarty the Patriot are very smart about that. And actually, I noticed this the other day watching the episode for like the third time. Um, When Holmes first opens the letter, he gets about how he's going to have a secret visitor, the King of Bohemia, that actually turns out to be Irene Adler in Moriarty the Patriot. He opens up the letter and and he reads it out. Um, But what's actually written on the page in English is, I think, an actual excerpt from from Conan Doyle's works. Oh, really? Yes, I had to pause it and like read it, but it I am fairly certain that is what it was. I had so not like, noticed maybe that. Maybe they're just sneaking they might just be sneaking Easter eggs like that in there to be like, look, we're smart. We, maybe. we know our Sherlock stuff. Or the um, other thing is just maybe the Moriarty's do survive to reach that old age, or maybe at some point they use a body double that is this elderly man. Yeah. That just the fact that that illustration exists raises so many questions since we have to assume on some level, all right, that I I don't think I've ever seen a series open with a futuristic scene and not have that be in the world of the rest of the series. Even if we never go back and see that boy in the room reading the book again, that I... I'm generally inclined to say, all right, that is the future of the world that we are seeing in the series. Mm. So how do we get to that? How does that illustration happen? Is it that something gets skewed or is a detail changed? Does Watson say, all right, I'm going to alter certain pieces of it because I know that uh, we can't have the truth be that the Moriarty's planned all this because we need to actually – Even if Watson himself, in the end, knows that uh, the Moriarty's have engineered a zero requiem situation and knows the truth that they planned for their own demise, does he then say, all right, 
if in order to preserve what they have done, their work, their sacrifice, I need to make sure that what I write and what I canonize follows the public perception. I can't publish the truth because, quite literally, the public can't handle the truth because that undermines the entire effort and goal that they put all this work into. So I need to make Moriarty just be evil. Maybe. Uh, that's interesting. I will be... I will be curious. Uh, <laughs> it's too good. Yes. It's too good. Uh, uh, we are almost at the hour, I guess. Do you have any last particular points or things that you want to just, you know, uh, geek out over before we head out? Uh, evil never looks so good and it makes me angry. <laughs> Like, they are very pretty, and I stand by the copy that I used in our anime of the year video where Moriarty was number eight, and it was just hot anime Sherlock. (laughs) I forgot you did that. Yeah, that's right, because I hadn't seen it yet then myself. That's right, but that's one of the things that made me finally watch it, because I'm like, well, at least they're pretty, even if the story is bad. Well, the story's not bad. Spoilers. It's really good. It's real good. Uh. Oh, man. I don't know. No, I don't have any ending thoughts. Just I need to get my butt back to London now so I can go to that museum. Yes. Um. Yeah. I, I could probably talk about Sherlock all day. We'll have to do, even if we don't get a full episode's worth out of it, once the series has ended, you and I will have to get at least, you know, a good 10-minute session in that we'll tell Emmy and Mario sometime after the series concludes, all right, Franji and I need to have our post-mortem of Moriarty the Patriot to give our full thoughts on the finale whenever that is. I don't think a third season will happen, so it would probably be in about this time next season. But I I was wrong this time, I last time, so... We'll see. I don't know. There's an awful lot of Sherlock Holmes stories. And there I don't know is. How many there is. Through. Yeah. Uh, is 60 or 64? 60 and then four novels, I think it is. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's either that or it's like 50. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <sighs> uh, anyway, as always, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, Franji, do you have anything that you want to plug before we head oh, out? Yeah. Yeah, I should have plugged this thing like forever ago, and it's practically irrelevant by now, but watch Sleepy Princess in the Demon Castle, because I am a lot of background yelly demon voices in that. Um, I had some really fun roles. Uh, episode 6 is the first one. I have a crazy one-liner as the bubble soldier who dies as the princess drowns him, um, and then I'm like a screaming battery pack on the wall. It was some of the funnest voiceover sessions. Funnest is not a word. Some of the most fun voiceover sessions um, that I have ever done because uh, I just got to go ham and be really cartoony and ridiculous um, and yeah and the show is just funny uh, delightfully funny yeah, I, it, I don't it think is I a very soft fun comedy show it's one that I got about halfway through and dropped not because I didn't like it but because I was watching so much other stuff last season mm-hmm. and that it was just it, it is a it's a show you can pick up whenever and just every yeah. episode is good every episode is fun um, there is a bit of a underlying story going on, but the meat and potatoes of the series is just the episodic shenanigans that our sleepy princess gets up to, and that you <laughs> can really just pick story. up whenever. 
Yes, and the underlying story wraps up in a neat little bow. Um, it's just, it, it's good. It's good. It's fun. Yeah, I will end up going back and finishing it, and I'm going to have to watch the dub now, so. <laughs> no, you can watch whatever one you want. Yeah, I have access uh, to both, so I will, I'm going to watch the dub. <laughs> okay. Plus, both plus like funny. I said, I stopped around episode six anyways, and since that's where you come into play, that's the perfect time for me to switch anyway. You probably won't even know it's me, but that's okay. But that's going to be half the challenge of I'm going to have to listen to all the bit parts and be like, all right, it, it's going to be an I spy or, you know, an I hear of where's Frangie. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but that's it. That's all I got. Yeah. Uh, as for me, tomorrow, April 24th at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, right here on Digital Era Twitch, we are doing our next radio drama presentation of The Mummy it's going to be a lot of fun. We have spliced in some uh, <clears throat> uh, additions, given the Egyptian nature of everything, and also the fact that just... So, full disclosure, one of the things that I need to do when I adapt these scripts is break apart all of the bit roles and parse them out such that the people who aren't one of the leads have as equal a word count as possible. And one of the things I realized really early on was that the mummy is very heavily weighted towards its main cast, more so than your average film. So the number of words that the non-main characters would have had, like people outside of the top three roles, like four roles, the number of words that they would have each had on average would have been like the smallest that we've had for any presentation outside of the Pokemon ones, out of the, uh, the Pokemon films, back when we did them because those were very short films. Wait, so are you going to tell people what you added in? Or well, is that well, well, I'm getting to that. So that is oh. why I felt particularly empowered to make some additions because <laughs> there had always been sort of a gag of, what if I put in some Yu-Gi-Oh stuff? And it started as a joke, but then I started talking with other people and they were like, no, this sounds fun. And I started thinking about it and was like, it does sound fun, and also there's some action scenes where, you know, if I were to have it narrated out, it would just be a monologue from the narrator, and it's not even particularly compelling action, and the option there is either give the narrator even more words when they're not hurting for words, cut it, in which case the runtime would be a little bit shorter, and the words spoken for anyone outside of that main cast would be only about 400 words each. You usually were running somewhere between six and like 800 words for other people. So it was going to be really less than usual. So given that, I was like, all right, I'm going to make some additions. And I did. And I think I actually did it pretty tastefully that the way I have phrased this is we are not doing Yu-Gi-Oh! skinned mummy. This is not all right, it's perpetual Yu-Gi-Oh! left, right, and center, but it's Yu-Gi-Oh! with a side, sorry, it's Mummy with a side dish of Yu-Gi-Oh! that we have just some moments, some scenes, uh, there's three primary scenes where we kind of take you away from the Mummy action and do some Yu-Gi-Oh! stuff, and then I've sprinkled a reference here and there, but nothing that makes it not the Mummy. This is still the Mummy. So, do tune in if that is of interest to you, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I know, Franji, you unfortunately are not going to be able to join us because uh, you have an event with your wife, if memory serves. I do, yeah. Well, I do hope you have fun with that. Uh, you'll definitely be able to hear the recording later on. 
but that will be this Saturday, April 24th at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, our usual time. And other than that, as always, please do follow us here on Twitch, on Twitter, on Facebook. We have wonderful nerdy content most days of the week. Uh, I think that's all I've got. So, Franji, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. When I heard that it was just going to be the two of us, I was like, okay, part of me was already thinking of doing a Moriarty thing, but since it's just the two of us, I'm glad that we were able to take this time and just really nerd out because we've been sending yeah. messages back and forth in our uh, our Facebook chats about this already, and we know that we can't do this when Mario and Emmy are here because they're not watching the show, and that's their loss. But <laughs> we needed to we needed to get this out. Yes, absolutely. So I'm glad All we right. had that chance. So thank you to everyone who tuned in. Thank you to everyone who downloaded on Apple iTunes, uh, Amazon, and all of those other podcast platforms. I'm Joel. She's Franji. This is Dikai, and we will be back next week. So until then, stay safe, stay sane, get your Fauci ouchie, and we will be back on Digital Era Twitch.